0: We talked about who am I, we talked about how the closer my relationship is with God, the more my view of how he sees me shapes my self-image. That was week one. Week two, you're only as valuable as your performance. We talked about that lie from the enemy, and your performance, we had to straighten out, does not qualify you. Your failure does not disqualify you. Amen? Someone say amen. Then we had to come to grips with the fact that my value to God is rooted in sonship. I'm family. Therefore, I am valuable. Amen? Then we talked about how my usefulness is rooted in partnership. I become more useful to the degree I am able to partner with him. No matter how useful I am, though, I never become more valuable. Right? So we're getting more useful to God as we get our stuff fixed up and we get our ourselves together and we learn and we, we study as the scripture says to show yourself approved. A workman needeth not be ashamed. who can rightfully handle the word of truth. But we never become more valuable. We never become more valuable. We might become more useful but not more valuable because our value is rooted in our relationship. It's like your children don't become more valuable just because they know how to swing a hammer. Right? They might become more useful but they don't become more valuable. So we had to straighten that out as well. We've been straightening all these things out then we talked about our definition of mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And getting those two straight in our mind as well. And a couple of weeks ago we talked about the um, same wage story from Matthew chapter 20. We talked about the uh, workers at the end of the day. And the, or, and the workers at the beginning of the day, and the first workers were angry, not because they were not being paid what they deserved, but rather that those hired at the 11th hour were being paid what they did not deserve. You see, they were stumbling over grace. That's what they were stumbling over. And then last, we talked about the story of the father's love. Uh, the father welcomes the rebellious we talked about. The father forgives the religious, and the father just wants his family back. Amen? So and if you'd missed any of those, uh, you can catch them on, uh, on uh, iTunes there. But uh, today, everybody take out your, your thinking cap and put it on top of your head. Just stretch that thing out however that looks and just snap that sucker on, okay? Because we've been telling, talking stories. We've been talking, you know, stuff that, that, that really is heart. But today I want to help you out a little bit. I want to I dig a little bit uh, and, and help us understand how we got so far from the grace message in the evangelical church. For example, I pointed out last week how the story of the prodigal son uh, is, is, in, is, you know, heading in your, in your Bible if you, you know, and it says the prodigal son above it, right? And we're like, but how, why is it a story of the prodigal son? I mean, it's a story actually of two sons. And, uh, you know, you got one son uh, goes off and squanders everything. The other son, he, there's a whole part of that story. In fact, I, I'd heard the story three or four times before I ever knew there was another son. You know, all I ever heard about was the prodigal one. I never, I never heard about the other one. And, uh, you know, and as I told you, I think it should be called the story of the father's love But uh, because that, that's the, the, the thing that changes it all. It all hinges on how the father treated the son. So how do we get to this place where a, a heading in our Bible, because you all remember those headings in your Bible are not inspired, right? You know, when they were writing the the, the, the scripture in Aramaic or Greek or in Hebrew, they didn't stop and go and put a heading in there. You know, the, the headings are, and the numbers, you know, the, they're not in the original manuscripts either. You guys realize that? They, you know, it doesn't say, you know, oh, it's Matthew 20, whatever, that, that wasn't in there. It was just written like one long letter. And then to help you find stuff, uh, you know, those who translated the scriptures, and all that, they put the references in so we could navigate it easier. And then they got the idea to put headings in. And, and historically, the heading in most translations says the prodigal son, so... How do we focus in on the prodigal? Why do we focus in on that for the story rather than the father's love or the story of two brothers? Well, I'm going to help you understand that and how we got there this morning. Um, the reality is, it's this concept here I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about original sin versus original tent. And I'm talking about one grace, but there's two narratives that tell the story of God's grace. Now, I don't mean that there are two scriptures or there's two Bibles or there's there's different scriptures and some people have one scripture and some have another. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. There, there, but how many know that you can read something and somebody else can read something and you can get two different conclusions from what you read? That ever happened to you before? Or how many know that you can watch a movie, somebody else can watch a movie and the movie said this to you but it said something different to them? Right? Well, sometimes what happens when we we read the Scripture, especially if we read it with any kind of a theological predisposition. Everybody say theological predisposition. You're asking, what in the world is that? A theological predisposition means that you approach something already predisposed or already determined or already fashioned to think about it in one particular way. So many people read these stories, read the this, this Scripture, read the passages, the same passage you're reading, but they're reading it with a different theological predisposition than you're reading it with. And so that heavily influences the way that we uh, interpret or the way that we gain value and understanding out of Scripture. Well, that's what I'm talking about. There are two... Um, narratives or two uh, ways or dispositions in which people approach the scripture. And uh, the one focuses on original sin, the other focuses on original intent. And I want to show you how this influences the way we read scripture and what we get out of the stories of scripture. All right, so let's, let's look at this. Let's look at the first narrative, all right? And the first narrative, looking at Genesis chapter 1, right? The first narrative, we're going to go right back to the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible story of creation. The first narrative, uh, and God said it was very good. So if you take a few moments to read the biblical account of creation uh, of man, all right, you're going to see that uh, uh, there's a story here that we're going to look at. and, And how this story is viewed greatly influences the way you view all the rest of Scripture. So it says, starting in verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. It's all in bold. You see that? Can you guys tell that there? One sitting at the back. Can you see it? That's a little bit bigger. All right, just help me out. Uh, Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. Every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I've given you every herb or herb, which is the proper way of pronouncing that. Do you say the H or not? No? So it's herb. All right, all right. Just checking. Uh, uh, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which uh, there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was what? No, no, read it again. It was what? Very good. That's right. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. All right. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, then the chances are you've read this passage many times, many times before. But if you're new to it, this is the story, uh, Genesis chapter 1, chronicling the creation of man on the sixth day. All right? Uh, Chronicling that creation on the sixth day. Now, there's some interesting things that we get from uh, this passage which I think are really important. All right, uh, What's the first one? Well, that we are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. This is the first thing that I think is extremely important from this passage. This revelation that we're made in the image of God has been the cornerstone of Western civilization. This has been the thing that has caused us to build hospitals, to explore science, to uh, find medical cures, to create universities, education. Uh, All of these things uh, were the fruit or the byproduct or the result of a revelation that we're made in the image of God, that we are his special creation. And so as a result of that, it influenced the way we dealt with creation. Secondly... It also established the belief that life is sacred. So if you believe that all life, human life is made in the image of God, then all human life is sacred, right? Everybody say amen. It's sacred. That means you're not supposed to kill it. You're not supposed to harm it. You're not supposed to treat it poorly or badly. It's made in His image, right? And so this has been the keystone of, of our civilization and uh, you know the, the wars that are being waged today are ultimately the fruit of us shifting away from a culture of life as sacred to a, a death focused culture. One of the startling differences between the Egyptian culture and the Israeli culture is one was life focused, the other was death focused and uh, for the Egyptians they built big monuments to the dead, everything was about the dead. And uh, their ceremonies and their rituals all had to do with the dead. But the reason you don't hear a lot about hell or heaven in the Old Testament is because they were largely concerned with counterculturing uh, the message that was out there in all of these other pagan religions, and it was like the message of life and that life is sacred. All right. And that also we read in the Scripture the foundation of equality of men and women. Male and female, he created them. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times, if you listen to people in recent history, they'll try to tell you that the church is the great oppressor of, of, of women. It's not true. The, the, the church was the great liberator of women. Now, there might have been times as we became more liberal as a society that people tried to in the church tried to hold on to some uh, thoughts or some processes which were older. But the reality is, at the time of, of Scripture, of, of Jesus coming... Uh, most women were, were more than, no more than just uh, possessions of men. And all of a sudden, Paul comes and says, there's neither male nor female, uh, you know, uh, Jew nor Greek nor, uh, you know, uh, anything in Christ, we're all one, right? And Paul's call to the church was powerful, and it was counterculture, but it was based on his understanding all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Praise the Lord. All right, got to move along. I don't know how far I'm going to get in this today, so when we get close to ending, I'll just, I'll just quit. All right, how, how's that work? You know, just some of you are thinking, is he going to go on all day? Is he going to go on all day? Go for it? Thank you. Thank you, Laura says go for it. All right. But, uh, yeah, you know, but that, see, she's new. So new people are, like, willing to put up and give me grace, right? But, uh, you know, some of the old standards are going, no, don't encourage them. Don't encourage them for crying out loud. We'll be here past Swiss chalet time. We don't want that. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) all right, let me move on. All right, so in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 31, it said, indeed, it was very good. It was very good. I find this interesting. When God finished making the planets five times, for for example, at the end of every day of creation, God said at the end of it, it was good. Right? Right? When he finished making the the planet and the the stars, good. When he finished the firmament and the water separating, it was good. Uh, Everything that was on land, good. Everything that was in the sea, good. But when he finished making man, at the end of everything on the sixth day, he said, behold, it was what? Very good. Very good. Special emphasis at the end of making Adam and Eve. It was very good. It was very good. And I don't think we can afford to miss the fact that after five days, it's good, but at the end of the sixth day, it is very good. Now, you could say, well, it's because he was satisfied with all his work. That's true. But the pinnacle of his work was humanity, the creation of the beings made in his image, in his image. And the detail of man's creation continues in Genesis chapter 2. So all of the rest of the creation is just mentioned in chapter 1. But then when you start reading in chapter 2, it gives the details of day 6, Right? It it unfolds day six. That's why God said it was very good, because it was very important, right? And so important, he took another chapter to give detail of the creation of man. And man begins like every other creature that God had made. He begins a mere biological form, but the scripture doesn't stop there, just saying that God uh, created them and and put them on the earth like he did the animals, etc., etc. But he gets more descriptive. Now, in the Greek language, there are two main words used to describe life, all right, bios and zoe, everybody say bios and zoe, and those two words are are different, uh, you know, bios uh, is, is the word that describes all living things, from, from animals to plants to amoeba, right, it's, it's organic life, that's bios, so that's why, And we get words like a biosphere and stuff like that. Uh, biology, the study of living things, right? So we get that, that language comes right out of the Greek. There are many, many words, especially in the, in the realm of science and medicine that we use that come from the Greek. So biology is simply the ology or logos is the study of, and bios, life. So it's a study of living things, right? But that's different than the word zoe, The word zoe has to do not with the organic life, but the essence of life, the essence of being. And, uh, you know, this is something that is really important for us to distinguish, not just bios, but zoe. God breathed and man came to life, not merely the bios, an organic body, but a creation possessing a soul, which is mind, will, and emotions, and a spirit as well. Man became like God in his image, with the capacity to feel, to create, to love, and to be loved. You see, God created something different when he made us. The Bible says he breathed into us. He breathed into us, very life. He breathed into us, Zoe, and we came to be this being that was very different than everything else. We had an essence of life, the Bible says, that was like God. Like God. Yes, we were like him even before we ate of the fruit. We just picked up an extra little dimension when we ate the fruit and lost our innocence. But in the beginning, we were already made in his image different than everything else in the garden. Does everybody follow me so far? Are you tracking with me? All right. Good. Remember, I said you had to put your thinking cap on. So the focus on the divine nature of man at the point of creation, as outlined in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, This forms the background of the first narrative, all right, that we're going to look at that tracks all the way through scripture, two narratives, all right? And this first narrative looks at what was the intent of God when he made man, what was his original intent? It was to make a creation that was made in his image to have dominion over this realm that he created as an expansion of his own kingdom in heaven. And man had been placed with authority over that. And everything was to fall under his authority and rule. And that was the original intent of God. And the the fact that we're made in his image, the fact that we are, uh, you know, God's special creation, this is the focus of the story. So when we view God's grace through the lens of this first narrative, The focus of what was accomplished on the cross is on the restoration of man to his place of divine relationship and authority. The focus is on what God, which man enjoyed, I should say, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Do you understand what I'm saying today? So when you you view the events of Scripture, when you view the events of Jesus' life, His death and His resurrection, when you view it all in this first narrative, the first way of looking at the Bible, when you view it that way through the lens of original intent, you see a story where where God, as I said last week, is is endeavoring to get His family back. He's endeavoring to put it back together. It's, It's about restoring what was. That's God's original intent. And it literally is extremely important that we understand that God's plan and his emphasis in that first narrative was on his original intent. Everybody got that so far? Now, the second narrative. The second narrative. Let's look at that one today. The second narrative, key verse from that. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. The second narrative of the story of God's grace It acknowledges the chronicle of creation from chapters 1 and 2, but places the emphasis of the story on the events of chapter 3, commonly known as the fall of man. So let's look at that account in Scripture. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the uh, fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will uh, not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman, when the woman, I should say, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now the serpent approaches Eve and convinces her to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After listening to the serpent's lie, and seeing that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable, she also gave to her husband, who, by the way, says, was what? With her? With her? So all you guys who like to put all the blame on the ladies, Adam was with her. So either he was doing what men do today still, ignoring his wife when she was talking and having a conversation with somebody, right? She's talking to this serpent dude, whatever that looked like, and Adam's either ignoring her or he's just as culpable as she is. You take your pick. Neither one of them is a very good scenario, all right? So Adam was with her. And he ate the fruit as well. All right? Everybody follow me? That was for free this morning. All right? So if you continue reading on in chapter 3, then you will see in later verses the effects and how they impacted them. So the first effect, right, was uh, shame. The first effect was shame. They realized, the Bible says, they were naked. Right? They felt ashamed. So they sewed fig leaves together for covering and they hid themselves. Right? Right? So that was the first thing. Now, if you read on further in the story, you'd find the second one. Uh, that is the uh, abdication of responsibility. All right? The second fruit or byproduct of the fall is abdication of responsibility. Everyone in the story passes the buck. Right? You ever see that? You know, Adam, what have you done? She made me do it. And then she said, not my fault. The serpent did it. Right? And you see how that happens? And, and you, you want to know how you know you're not going down a good path. It's when you start passing the buck. How many understand the responsibility for your life stops where? Right here. Now, I understand we are all influenced by the things that have happened to us. And we don't have control over a lot of it. We don't. And some of it's pretty nasty. Some of it can be very hurtful. Some of it can be very painful. But here's the beautiful thing. God has given you the ability to choose how you're going to deal with it, though, from this day forward. He's empowering you today to make those choices. Now, you say, well, you don't know how hard it is. You're right. I don't know your story. I don't know how hard it is. You also don't know mine. You don't know what I've had to choose, what I've had to decide to do, or how I've had to decide to move forward despite things that have happened to me. So guess what? I exercise my will to choose in Christ and to receive his healing and to move forward. Guess what you can do? You can do the same. You can do the same. That's the beauty of the gospel of God's grace. He gives us an enabling power, something we don't deserve, to overcome all the fiery darts of the wicked one, right? Everybody tracking with me so far? All right. So, <clears throat> the focus of this second narrative, in other words, the second way of looking at Scripture, the second way of looking at the creation story or, and how that thread moves throughout Scripture, is on Adam's sin. It sees the work of Christ on the cross as that of undoing the work of Satan in the garden, of redeeming us from the curse of death. The death and resurrection of Christ is viewed as the cosmic event which deals with the sin problem. As a result of Christ's sacrifice, man no longer faces an eternity of separation from God, but can now be reunited with God throughout eternity. And you guys are here now saying, yeah, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That's the truth. That's all true. Right? That's all true. All of that... Is soundly true. Christ's work on the cross does do just that. So what's the difference then between the two narratives? So you got two narratives. you got two ways of viewing Genesis and right through the end of the scripture. What's the difference? Well, that's what I'm going to help you out with here today. It's very unlikely that if you did a Google search on this, you wouldn't find anything about it. I know because I tried. It isn't that other people haven't written about this. It's just that, It hasn't been written enough that you're going to find it with a Google search. But the truth of the matter is, for much of church history, the focus of the creation narrative has been on the fall of man. I don't know about you, but it was for me. Uh, I was raised Catholic. How many raised Catholic here? Can anybody wave at me? I mean, uh, when you go to the Catholic church, what's the first thing you notice? The crucifix, right? Where's Jesus? Jesus. What's he doing? Paying the price for your sin. Uh, the focus has been for much of church history, and the narrative has been, on the fall of man. And, uh, and if, you, if you dig into historical stuff like St. Augustine and Augustinian theology, and, and you know, John Calvin, the Protestant, who came along and borrowed all of Augustine's theological uh, truths, and, 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 and the emphasis in all of that is on fixing the sin problem. So you want to know how in the world did the story of the prodigal son get called the prodigal son? Why? Because what's the focus on? Fixing the sin problem. So what do we focus on? The dude that took off and sinned. And sinned greatly, as we mentioned last week, in such a way that the words only used to describe that sin once in the whole Bible. So what's the story become about? The story becomes about the sin. It becomes about the the filthy sinner who ran away. We, you know, we even entitle it the prodigal son. And I find it interesting that the rebellious took precedent over the religious. You could have entitled it the self-righteous son and focused on the second son. But instead, we focus on the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal son. How do we get that to that place? How did the church get to that place where the focus and the emphasis is always on the sin. It's because we're viewing the lens, or the story of the scripture, I should say, through the lens of this second narrative, which is focused on original sin rather than on God's original tent. Does this make any sense to anybody? This is important stuff. God's desire was to have a people that would rule and reign with him as his collective family. That's always been his desire. And this first narrative's focus was on that. It's on the original intent of God. God's plan, God's purpose to have a, a people who would rule and reign with him over this colony called the earth. The special nature of God's prized creation, its restoration, this was the is the emphasis of God's, when we approach the scripture with God's original intent. So when we read the scripture, when we read the Bible, our focus, when we read the the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, when we read about the resurrection, when we read the letters of Paul, and we read the letters of, of, of Peter and James and all the rest of them in the New Testament, the focus carried through for us is on the original intent of God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as David said, and I know that right well how I'm a beautiful creation of God, this is where it begins. But the second narrative, the second narrative's focus is not on original intent, but on original sin. And so many doctrines have sprung up from that. How many have ever heard of total depravity, right? You know, St. Augustine, you know, came up with his, the the doctrine of total depravity, so that you are so completely eviscerated, if you don't know what that word means, it means... uh, cut open and everything removed, so eviscerated of anything good that we can't possibly at all ever come to God. We are totally, completely depraved. You'd almost think when you read Augustine's theology that we're not made in the image of God, we're made in the image of Satan. And so that there's he said there is no good thing in anybody, you can't even you can't even say yes to God. You can't even go to him in prayer even after he redeems you. That's why you need Mary, by the way. Because you're so bad, so bad, that even after you're saved, you still need Mary to stand in the gap for you. You can't even go to Jesus. you got to have somebody go for you. Do you get the picture here? And this thinking didn't just, you know, stay with, with Catholicism. John Calvin selected so much of it and brought it over into Protestantism and just got it out from underneath the Pope. All right? And and then what happens as a result of it? Well, then, as a result of that view of God, well, then we have to add works. And in the Catholic Church, they're called the sacraments, and they exist in many Protestant churches as well. These things that you must do in order to be right with God. Right? Sacraments. Everybody heard that word before? Well, how does a teaching like that ever get root? How did, how did people ever read the Scripture and come to the conclusion that I need to make sacraments to, in order to, to help me, you know, get right with God? How do we ever get there? It's because we, we viewed the Scripture through the lens of original sin rather than the lens of original intent. Two narratives, one story, two ways of looking at the story. Am I making sense to Anybody? Is this helping you out at all? So, okay, so big deal, Pastor. What, what does this have to do with anything? All right, let me just give you an example. You are going to be encouraged over the next few weeks to, uh, to take a course called the Christian Life Witness course with... Uh, the Will Graham uh, Association, and we're going to have the dates of that posted for you. You'll find all, all about it on the 14th, and we're, we're tra- we have trainings, all three different locations in Belleville. We have two in the county, two in Trenton, uh, Maydock, and Bancroft, and uh, it's, we're going to be training the entire Quinty area on how to do personal evangelism. And the, the, the there are two ways in which you can approach personal evangelism. Okay? So here's how depending on which narrative you come from, will determine how you approach evangelism. So you can start from, you know what? God loves you. You are a special creation of God. He thinks that you are wonderful. He created you with special gifts and special talents. And, and, you know, and so God wants to redeem that. He wants to buy it back for his glory and for his use and for his purpose. And so God has sent his son to pay the price for our sins, for our bad decisions, for the things we've done, so that we can walk with him and fulfill our destiny. Isn't that a great way to sell the scripture? Or you can say, you know what? You are a sinner. You may not know it, but you are a sinner. And you, you, know, you, know, you know what sins have you created? Well, Mark, do you know the Ten Commandments? Have you kept them all? No. Oh, and I've heard evangelists approach it this way. They'll even give you a seminar on how to, how to, how to approach evangelism this way. And how to, to convince somebody that they're a sinner. Because if you, if you approach sharing the gospel from original sin, the first thing you've got to do is convince somebody that they're a sinner. Right? Or are you saying then that we don't preach about sin or talk about sin anymore? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying my focus uh, is not on the original sin. It's on God's original intent. And do we need to deal with sin? Of course we do. Because it's getting in the way of God's original intent. Are you hearing me? But I don't know if you, but I, don't, I, I used to share the gospel that way. And it just used to get people mad. I'm not a sinner. And then you, you turn them into self-righteous people. We both know they're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We give them Romans Road. And, we, we, and how does Romans Road start? It starts with sin. We point out to them all their sin. And then once we've convinced them that they're a thorough, rotten sinner, now we tell them the good news. Jesus died for all that sin, right? Isn't that how how we were trained? And we were trained under that narrative. We were thoroughly trained under that narrative. Everybody say thoroughly. So thoroughly, we we didn't even think about it. This is just how you you preach the gospel. This is just how you do it. And and, and it's important for you to understand, okay, I'm not suggesting that, that the story, the second narrative way is, is not biblically accurate. It is biblically accurate. It is biblically accurate that we are, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both uh, stories or both narratives are biblical. They're both rooted on the scripture. They're both true. It's just that one says let's, let's start at the beginning, the beginning, and the other one says let's start at Genesis chapter 3. You're a sinner. Why? Because Adam sinned. So you were born. Uh, you were born a sinner. Right? You're not a sinner because you sinned. Augustine's theology says you're not a sinner because you sinned. You're a sinner, and you sin because you're a sinner. Right? I'm not going to go down. Someone said, what would you say? You're not a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you're a sinner. Right? everybody get that? You are born with original sin, totally depraved, so you sin, right? And all the emphasis is on sin, 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 and you got to, and we, we spent weeks in Bible college talking and debating about sin. How about we just say, hey, we've all done it, let's get right, you know what I mean? Let's accept his grace and his love, woo-hoo, big day, big day, got grace, big day, big day, hallelujah, you know what I'm saying? Oh, man, I hope you're having as much fun listening as I am talking. All right. Now, almost. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't raised in a house that understood grace from that first narrative. From the Genesis chapter 1, you are a wonderful creation of God. You were made by God to carry the responsibility of subduing the earth, ruling over it, reigning over it, taking care of it. I wasn't, I wasn't raised, I was raised Catholic. So, you know, uh, let me give you a little bit of how this affected, uh, you know, me and my upbringing. So like most Catholic kids, I found it difficult to sit through Mass. For those who are the, the uneducated about the Catholic Church, we... We'd call our weekly service, we called it Mass. Even though technically the Mass is only the part where we celebrate the Eucharist, it was called Mass. And when would you go to Mass? Well, we went on Saturday night usually so my parents could go out to dances and stuff afterwards and sleep in Sunday morning. So I was a Saturday night Mass guy. But we went went to Mass every week. I was a faithful Mass guy. And so I found it hard as a little kid to sit through service because it was, quite frankly, boring. It was the same thing every week. And when I say the same thing, you say, well, it's the same thing here too, you know. We have liturgy here. We sing thongs and we do the announcements, the offering, we sing more songs. And then somebody talks, usually you. So it's, a, it's no different. But when I say same thing, I mean, have you ever been to a liturgical service? It's literally the same thing every single week, you repeat the same portions of texts. You, you do responsive readings. They're exactly the same. You get a little break at Easter and a little break sometimes at Christmas. But otherwise, it's the same thing. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. So I found it hard to sit through it. So my parents got the great idea. They said, let's get you to become an altar boy. Seemed like a good idea. So I, you know, went in and started serving as an altar boy at the age of eight. Right? So I was an altar boy. I was a good altar boy. Worked really hard. And uh, then by the time I was 13, I became a lay server. So I was up there serving people communion with the priest. We get two lines formed. He'd be doing one. I'd be doing the other. So I used to say, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. I didn't really like putting it on their tongue. There were some old schoolers who still wanted you to put it right on their tongue. And you'd have to put the wafer right on their tongue. That, that was a little rough for me. I liked it when they held out their hands and I got to put it in their hand. You know, the tongue thing was a little bit over the top. But, you know, you get some, you know, old, old guy comes up there. It's so the way he's always done it. And you're putting the wafer on his tongue. So this is what I grew up doing. All right? And, and you're saying, what has this got to do with what we're talking about? Well, I'm about to tell you. So trying to give you some context there. So for me, the highlight of the year in the Catholic Church was Good Friday. I have such vivid memories of our Good Friday uh, services. We would do a thing called the Stations of the Cross. So if you've been to a Catholic church, you'll see reliefs or statues or motifs on the walls, uh, six on either side usually. There's 12 of them. They're the 12 Stations of the Cross. And so uh, one of us would be carrying a standard with a, a crucifix in the top of it. The other one of us would be carrying a, a little brass uh, chalice thing with holes in it, it had incense burning, and we would walk around, and the priest would stop at each one of the stations of the cross, and he would read a relevant text of scripture from what portion of Jesus' agonizing situation he was going through in his journey to the cross, and there'd be some responsive readings, and then we'd go to the next one, all right? does everybody following me so far? And they were on the outside of the wall, so we would literally walk down the center aisle facing the people and facing the, the stations as we went along, all right? And so... Um, We did this, and I can, vivid memories of Good Friday, vivid memories. But you know what? I cannot for the life of me remember one Easter service. I can't. I remember they had Easter lilies in the church for Easter Sunday, but I don't remember anything unique or special about Easter Sunday. You know, Resurrection Day, Victory Day, V-Day, you know what I'm saying? Nothing. Nothing. It's kind of like, you're saying, well, you're just, just, you just have a bad memory, you know. The emphasis was on the death, the crucifixion, the dying to fix my what? Sin problem. And, and uh, the resurrection, what I shall be if that sin problem is fixed, what I shall be again, and what God's original intent for me to be was evidenced by Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was the first to ever come out of a womb. That would be silly. Thousands and millions and millions of people have been born before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The firstborn of all creation is a reference to the fact that he was the first of a new type of being, a prototypical human who resurrected to glory that we all get to follow in his suit because of who Je- what Jesus is and what he did, right? Nothing. I have no memory of it at all. Nothing. Not a thing. Well, you just have a bad memory. I don't think so. How many have seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Good Catholic movie. Two hours and seven minutes of how Jesus suffered with five seconds about the resurrection at the end. You ever notice that? I'm I'm, I'm not being critical. Wonderful portrayal of what Jesus went through. Incredible movie. Powerful movie. Moving movie. But it only tells the Good Friday story. The Sunday story is a footnote at best. Why? Why? Original intent or original sin? Which narrative are you following? Am I beginning to make any sense to anybody here? And you see, when we look at the scripture and we look at everything that's in the Word of God through the lens of original intent, seeing the God of the universe as making a wonderful creation and sending his Son to restore that creation to its place of authority again. It changes everything about how you view yourself, your purpose as a church, the kingdom, everything shifts and hinges. Original intent or original sin. Are you saying you don't believe in the doctrine of original sin? Of course I believe that Adam and Eve sinned and I believe there was original sin. I'm just saying, I go back two more chapters and I see what God started with. Right? And I'm focused on original intent. What does God want to do with his people? What does God want to do with his church? What does God want to do with you? That's where we need to be focused. We need to say no to the death culture that's gripping our world today. And we need to say yes to the life culture, the life-giving culture of Jesus Christ, who wants to restore all things, restore your hope, restore your joy, restore your peace. That's the gospel that we need to preach. And I've already went way over, so I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Just got to get the worship team to get me the microphone a quarter too, two, then we'll be done at, you know, closer to 1130. Well, you know, you, you have to just know that Mark, Mark's long-winded at those announcements, so you're just going to have to, we're just going to have to accommodate the guy. We're just going to have to accommodate him. He's, <laughs> he was paying attention to the sermon today. Amen. Amen. That's awesome. That is so correct. See, and that's probably going to go in your notes for the cell groups this week, isn't it? See, that's what happens when you view it through uh, the lens of original sin. You become buck passers. (laughs) Let's all stand together this morning. Does everybody get this? Am helping you out? I know that this takes a little bit of thinking. Praise the Lord. Wayne just handed me this thing. This is a really good, this is a really good message when you look through lens of the narrative of, of original intent. And it says, forgiven, favored, and free. Forgiven, favored, and free. Amen. I'm telling you, this stuff will change your life. You get a hold of it. So, all right, Father, I know we're out of time. Swiss Chalet's got the chicken turning. So much going on today, and this is a thinking day. This is a thinking day, but we've got to get our rid of stinking thinking, and we have to get biblical thinking. We have to get thinking about the way you think and the way you look at us. And I know when I read the Scripture that you look at me through the complete work of Christ with a heart of affection, with a heart of love, with a heart that so desires me to take hold of what's been provided for me through Jesus Christ that the Jeremiah 29 becomes fulfilled in my life. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. <laughs> plans not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. <laughs> Hallelujah. Father, that is how we view Scripture. The intent of God for each and every one of us is at the foreground of our mind. It's how we share Jesus. It's how we share his love. The intent of God for every one of us. Father, yeah, we have to deal with sin, but we take those sins and we lay them at the feet of Jesus who paid the price for them so that we could be everything we were called to be. That I am who I am says I am. Father, we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen.